All right, let's try this again. <laughs> Sorry about that. I, uh, when, I, when I am tired, uh, when I get tired, uh, my voice cracks. And so you probably didn't even hear the voice crack. I sure did, and it made me laugh. So I apologize. Okay, good. You all heard it. At least you knew what I was laughing about. Just what is this going on with this guy? It's like, you know, when you're in church, and you shouldn't laugh, and then you do. Uh, that, was, that's, that was that. Uh, I couldn't stop. And I mean, I've been doing this for like, what, 12 years now? And I, that was the first. And of course, it was one of the weeks where I'm broadcasting live <laughs> online too. So anyways, welcome. Uh, welcome to uh, Hope Lower Town. Um, all right, we are in Ephesians. We've been here now for eight weeks. And uh, this is again, kind of week three of a mini, mini series within uh, this passage in Ephesians in chapter two, one through 10. And so um, just to do a kind of a quick recap, because today we're just going to be in Ephesians chapter two, seven, uh, eight, uh, sorry, eight, nine, and 10. And so I just want to go back and kind of recap where we've been just briefly, and then we will um, uh, get into our text uh, today. So uh, two weeks ago, uh, when Paul preached, he kind of looked at the bad news, and, and we kind of sat in it, that the Apostle Paul starts off with, you're bad, uh, you, you are a sinner, and, and you, you, there's nothing to be saved from if I don't understand or believe that I'm a sinner. And, and that's a cultural thing that a lot of people, that was, I know Paul, that was his, his uh, story as well, of just saying, no, I, I'm, I'm not a sinner, I'm a good person. And realizing like, no, I, I, there is no one that's good except God. And I need to recognize that and sit in that and know that I'm a sinner. Even if I'm a Christian, even if I'm a believer in Jesus, I'm still a sinner. And we need to remember that we are in that. So let me just read uh, those verses there. Uh, the Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians chapter two, one through three, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you, uh, when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and followed the desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And in this quote from uh, Dane Orton, Gentle and Lowly, a uh, book that he wrote uh, just this past year, the mercy of God reaches down and rinses clean, not only obviously bad people, but fraudulently good people, both whom stand in need of resurrection. And that's true of everybody, uh, that there are people in the world who, who know they're bad. They know that they're evil. They know that they're sinful. And, and it's like, yeah, Jesus, he came, he came to save them. Yep, sure. But then there were some other people and myself would have been included in this. Like, oh no, no, I'm, I'm good. Like, I'm, I'm okay. Uh, I'm a good person. I love Jesus. He loves me, uh, clearly loves me more than those people. And I, but I was fraudulently good. I wasn't good. I was evil. I was wicked. Uh, and I needed Jesus to save me uh, and both whom stand in need of the resurrection. And so then last week, kind of introducing the, the good news of this passage, that it, the, the passage just starts off and it just says, you were, you were bad, you were dead in your sins, but God. And so we have this again, uh, uh, Augustine, I'm gonna have another quote from him, uh, a Bishop of Hippo in, uh, in Africa, North Africa. He said this, evil is the, is the absence of good. So kind of his definition of, of evil is there is no good. It's the absence of good. And so the Latin that he would use was privatio negatio, meaning that you, you, you cannot describe something evil or bad without understanding its counterpart that is good. I can't understand immorality without knowing what morality is. I don't know what it means to be ungodly unless I know what it means to be godly, right? And you get the point. That was his whole idea. And so the, the good news isn't good news without understanding the bad news. And so that's why we have to sit in that because the good news then would just be news instead of good news. And so um, we need to understand the evil 
And so the passage last week that we looked at, and, um, and the ESV chose the ESV of the, the English translation just because the language is a little, little uh, different, just with that, but God. You were dead in your sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And again, another quote from that book from Dane Ortland. Christ was not sent to mend wounded people or to wake sleepy people or advise confused people or inspire bored people or spur on lazy people or educate ignorant people, but to raise dead people. That, that we, last week we looked at this, we were, we were dead. I, I couldn't will myself. I couldn't wish I was a better person and, and, and maybe then God would, would choose me. No, no, he wakes me up. I'm 10,000 leagues under the sea. He gets the defibrillator out and he says, life, boom and wakes me up, and I see him as good and beautiful, and I want to pursue then my relationship with him. And so this week, as we get into this sermon from the, the rest of this passage in Ephesians 2, um, 8 through 10, is the great, the great news. And so when we look at the bad news plus the good news plus the great news, we get the gospel. And uh, there's a lot of good gospel in this passage in all of these verses. Um, so um, anyways, let's, let's continue Doing this, there's going to be some some heavier uh, theological things this morning, and I don't want to shy away from that. Again, that's why I really enjoy doing the way we we teach and preach, uh, is that we walk through a passage of scripture, and it's like, ah, man, I don't know if that means that. Um, how should I teach this? How should I approach this? Well, I want to. I did my homework. I'm, I'm digging into this as deeply as I can, uh, and I'm trying to take all of that study to to make it to where we can all uh, uh, understand and appreciate what's happened in this passage, and yet at the same time. Um, I don't want to shy away from depth, uh, and yet there are certain things in the Bible that I just can't wrap my brain around. Uh, and so uh, this is, again, a quote here from Augustine. Um, I see the height, but I cannot sound, sound of the depth. Uh, only, only James Cameron can do that. Um, he, went, he went to the Marianas Trench. Do you guys know that? It's crazy. Who does that? He does, I guess. I see the height. I cannot sound the depth. There's something about God that I see how, how massive and vast you are and how beautiful and grand you are. And yet there are, there are things that I just cannot comprehend. Um, so that being said, let's, let's jump into this. I'm, I'm basically just taking some key words and phrases and we're gonna focus in on, on those this morning. The first one is faith. So here is our passage uh, this morning. And if you've been around church for a while, if you haven't been around church, maybe your first time going to church, these verses might actually sound familiar. Uh, they're, they're kind of the go-to of like, hey, how, how, do, how does someone get saved? Or what does it mean to be saved? Ephesians 2, 8, 9 are in the top of the list. So Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says this, for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So there's a couple words in this passage, in these verses that I want to just highlight. Uh, that as I go to the next slide here, all I did was just underline and italicize and bold, I think, all, all the above, to these words. Two words, this 
and it. And so when we read this, these verses, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of yourselves. What is the this referring to? It is the gift of God. What is the it? What is the gift of God? What, what is this thing that God is giving? And what I would uh, postulate, did I use that word right? Sure. Uh, that, 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 that this and the it, the gift of God is actually referring back to faith. So we could read the verse this way, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this faith is not of yourselves. Faith is the gift of God. Oh no, I have faith, like that's me, that's me doing that. And I would say, no, I would say it is God given faith, but I don't wanna just sit there uh, I want to get a little, a uh, little bit more, and I don't want to get into all the Greek and everything because I'm not, a, I'm not a Greek expert uh, by any means. So I don't think that would really help. Um, but, but what is interesting though about this passage, if you, if you've studied Greek or if you know anything about Greek, doesn't even matter. It doesn't even if you know English. You guys know English? I hope so. Um, that when you have, maybe it's more Spanish. English doesn't really do this, uh, but in Spanish uh, it does this. Uh, the language, that, uh, that when you have faith in this, the first one, for by grace you have been, uh, been saved through faith. That first faith is feminine, uh, okay? And then, the, but then the this and the it are neuter. And so what happens is people who are just very basic on understanding of Greek, myself, would open it up and say, okay, this is feminine and these are neuters, therefore they, they can't refer back to faith. That doesn't make any sense. They must refer back to salvation or grace. And that has been the, the most common rendering and reading of this in modern day. For the past 100 years, that's been the case. My struggle with that um, is that I don't like new things when it comes to Christianity. Okay, I'm just gonna throw that out there. Uh, that when my neighbor's car is older than a new idea, uh, I struggle with grasping onto that, right? Uh, so, so when I think about this, I wanna, I wanna do some homework. I wanna, what, what did the old dead guys think about this? What, what, how, what? And so there's a gentleman by the name of Abraham Kuyper. He's, he's long dead. He died in the last century, maybe in the 1800s. I forget exactly when, but um, he is a theologian. And he wrote a book called uh, The Holy Spirit, and he wrote a chapter in the book specifically on this, this phraseology uh, in here. And the title of this chapter is called Defective Learning, <laughs> okay? Because he was combating people who interpreted the this and the it as salvation rather than faith. And so these are his points. So again, I'm not an expert. I'm not trying to be, but Kuiper was. Uh, and then he's gonna cite even more experts, to say, this is why I think this is the case. So he says this, nearly all the church fathers and almost all the theologians eminent for Greek scholarship judged that the words, it is the gift of God, refer to faith. So he's going old school. He's going back to the beginning. And then, he, then he's going to list them. Here's why. This was the exegesis. Exegesis is just a fancy word for, for interpreting the Bible into our context. This was the exegesis according to the ancient tradition of the churches in which St. Paul had labored. So the apostle Paul plants churches in Asia Minor and these churches are going, well, then their pastors then are, are being trained under Paul. And then those people write letters, Polycarp and all these other guys, they, they start writing letters and they start then saying, uh, this is how I interpret this as fluent Greek speakers of the day. That's how they read it. Uh, that was one. Number two, of those that spoke the Greek language, 
and we're familiar with the peculiar Greek construction, all of them said, this is what this means. So just because it's neuter or feminine, they, they actually argued as I was doing my homework this week that that's actually a really formal, like a very good way of writing Greek. Um, and so anyways, I don't understand all that. So I don't, I'm not expecting you to take my word on it. That's why I'm trying to give a little bit of context here. Number three, of the Latin church fathers who maintained close contact with the Greek world, all the early church Latin fathers as well, uh, they also interpreted it that way. Uh, number four, of such scholars as Erasmus, Grotus, and others who were philologists, uh, they were makers of philo dough. Uh, that's not true. Uh, philologists, they're just somebody who studies ancient text, ancient language. Um, they were without peers, meaning they kind of came to these conclusions on their own, right? They weren't emailing each other back and forth. Hey, what do you think about this? They, in just studying a text, they came up with this on their own. And, and this is, to me, along with Abraham, felt this as well. And in them, all the more remarkable, since personally, they favored the exposition that faith is the work of man. All right, so you have these Greek scholars, these Latin scholars that are studying this passage and they come to the conclusion that the this and the it refer to the faith, even though they didn't naturally want to believe that. They wanted to say, no, 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 clearly it's my doing. Jesus died for all people. Yes, he did. And so therefore I believe I put my faith in God, which is true, but that faith that you put in God is from God. It's a gift. Even though they didn't want to believe that, they were like, this is what it means. Last point of Abeza, Xanakis, Piscar, whatever, Heidegger, even the wolf, whatever. All these people, more modern in their uh, theology and in their interpretation, they all, again, they're, they're all long dead now, but not early church fathers. Um, and so that's why he says to the present day, but this was written a couple hundred years ago, maintain the original tradition. So does it mean that? I think it does. And I'll, and I'll give some reasons why and leave a little gospel application with that. But let me, let me just say this though about that. If I go back to the, to the text, and even if the, um, for it is by, by grace you've been saved through faith, and if the this and the it is not faith, it is still salvation. I still can't save myself. It is still a gift of God. It is not by works, but I am saved through faith. And so all of this is the grace and mercy of God. But I do think it is going to faith. And here's the, here's the illustration. I shared this last week. Uh, this is a painting from uh, the, the Prince of Egypt, uh, the Disney. It's not Disney. It's the it's DreamWorks, thank you. Um, that, they, uh, that if you were to interview an Israelite who's being, who, who is set free from, from Egypt, and they're walking down towards the Red Sea and they're standing there. Now the Egyptian army is pouring down. They're gonna kill them or they're gonna drown. They're dead. You're gonna say, hey, what's going through your mind right now? Like, I'm a dead man. I'm a dead woman. I'm a dead man walking. Uh, this is it. This is the end. And then God provides a way of salvation. He opens the door and provides a way to walk across the Red Sea on dry ground. They go across, they get to their side. And if you were to enter the, interview them again, they'd say, man, I, I was dead over there, but now I'm alive. I'm going to the promised land. I'm not there yet, but here I am. I've been saved. And, and we could say the same exact thing. I was dead in my sins. God saved me and, and I'm on my way to the promised land, but I'm not there yet. But here's why I bring this up again. Think about the individuals. You're, you're holding a torch, right? I mean, really, just try to put yourself in their shoes. You're, you're holding a torch 
and you are walking across dry land and there are walls of water on either side of you. Now, I don't know if whales were swimming, doing that kind of thing. I don't know. Uh, High-fiving dolphins, that kind of thing. I don't think that's what was going on. But imagine, put yourself in that tunnel of death, right? I'd be terrified. I would be losing my mind, right? I've got faith, but I've got a little bit of faith. And there might be other people that are just going crazy, doing cartwheels, running around, just having the time of their life and singing praises to God. He provided salvation, let's go. But guess who is saved? Both of them. Both of those individuals, whether they have little faith or a lot of faith, because it's not the the volume of my faith or the quality of my faith. What it is, is who my faith is in. And my faith, if I'm walking through that valley, is in Yahweh, is in God, providing salvation for me. And I trust him enough to get to the other side. And it is the exact same way now. I don't know about all of this. I don't know how, I don't know the intricacies of, of the atonement and Jesus dying on the cross for my sin, but I believe it and I struggle with this. My little tiny gospel application here in the middle of this sermon would be pray for more faith. If faith is really a gift of God, and when is the last time you're struggling with your faith, struggling with questions that I would argue that you can get on your knees and pray to God and say, God, Give me more faith. I want this. I want more of this. If he truly is the author of that. Now, if you're like me, some of you are thinking, well, what about free will? Where am I in all of this? I'm a free moral being. I have choices. I chose God. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. I have faith. I put my faith in God. Yes, you did. Uh, and I, let me explain. And I've shared this before. You've been around Lower Town for a while. You've seen uh, this before. Um, but I think it's very helpful, especially in the case for today's passage. And so this is uh, another old dead guy, a lot of old dead guys today. Um, Jonathan Edwards, in his book entitled The Freedom of the Will, says this, a free moral agents always act according to the strongest inclination they have at the moment of choice. That's true that if I have a choice, there are certain things that that go against my will where I don't have a choice, but when I do have a choice, I always do what is my strongest inclination at that time, at that point. I went and got coffee. Go get coffee, fill it up, ah, a little strong. I'm gonna put a little bit of water in here. Don't want creamer, don't want sugar. Why? Because that's my strongest inclination at that point. I chose that, I did that, right? Nobody made me do that. You sat down where you're sitting down because of your choice. You did that. Nobody forced you to sit there. Nobody forced you to come to church this morning. Sinners. Kidding. (laughs) Kidding. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Nobody forced us, right? It's our choice. And that's true. To piggyback on that, then R.C. Sproul in his book, uh, Chosen by God, says this. Every choice we make is free. Every choice we make is determined. What? What does that mean? He doesn't mean it's deterministic. Deterministic means every choice I make has, is already predetermined. It's not what he's saying. Every choice I make is free. At my strongest inclination at any point, it's my free choice, but it's determined. And what is it determined by? Me. My will. Self-determination. It's self-determined. But... 
The only choice that I will make is the strongest inclination at any given moment. And if I'm born a human being, I have a fallen, sinful nature. And at no point in my fallen, sinful nature is my strongest inclination ever gonna be, I want Jesus. So he comes along and he wakes us up and then we see Jesus and we go, yeah, that's what I want. I'm choosing the strongest inclination in my heart right now is Jesus. And the only reason we can do that is because he gave us faith. He opened our eyes and we say, yes. So continuing on that, I asked this question last week. Who's this letter written to? It's written to the church, right? This is a great passage that we can look at. Okay, what does it mean to be saved? And I, and I would say, I would argue that, hey, you, I, need, I want you to believe. I want you to put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what I want you to do. And yet, why would the apostle Paul write this to people who already believed that? A little bit of my story. Some of you know this, some of you don't, uh, not a big deal. But I, I remember that when I, I was a pastor, new pastor, this was you know, 12 years ago in Illinois, uh, in normal Illinois. And uh, my mentor gave me a little book just called The Cross-Centered Life. I read it. And I remember uh, calling up my mentor and said, this has got to be one of the dumbest books I've ever read in my life. And here was why. Because what I told him was this pastor is writing all of this stuff about Jesus to his church. He wrote this little book for his church. And I was like, it's just the gospel. They're already saved. Why would he do this? And he was like, read it again. And I was like, okay. It was like, you know, 30 pages, a tiny little booklet. And I read it again. And then for some reason, things started to click. I opened my eyes to the gospel and realized the gospel isn't, again, just some door I go through from death to life. It is a path that I walk on every single day as a believer. And so this letter that Paul is writing is to the church. It's to people who already believe it. And yet it's to people who need to be reminded of it every single day, every single moment that I had nothing to do with my salvation in the, in the sense that um, I'm not smart enough, right? Because I believed it. I'm smarter than somebody who doesn't believe it uh, or, or I'm, I'm better. I'm just a naturally better person than that person was. And so that's what I, why I believed. I, I, I don't do anything that. I, I do believe. I do have faith. That, that I do. But it's all by the grace of God. So again, when we look at this passage that it's by grace, and all these ideas of, of, of good works, right? That I can't do anything to add to my salvation. Because I would, I'm naturally bent to look at it and say, oh, good works. Where's the list of the works that I can do so that God will love me more? That's, that's how I would naturally function. And Paul says, yeah, it's got nothing to do with that. Oh, you're saved by grace? Cool. You're in? Cool. And then you know what I do? I want to work. I, I want to be better than all of you. But I, I want to earn that love, that sacrifice that Jesus made for me. It's like, I, I want to be worthy of that. So I'm going to do these things and, and maybe it'll be good enough. That's not the gospel. And so on, on our Monday morning uh, meeting, we, uh, the pastors and some other uh, preachers and speakers and some of the, the, the women on staff, we get together and we go through the passage and, and Olivia Deskelcamp, you probably don't know her, but she's uh, our kind of HR over the organization. And, and she she said, it's kind of like I need to read it. And then when I get to verse 10, go back to verses eight and nine. And it was like, you're totally right. Because, okay, I'm saved, I'm here, but I still now need to be reminded that it's all by grace. 
So I'm just gonna read it that way. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works so that no one can boast for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. I can't boast about this. I, I can't even on this side of it, of being a believer and a Christian and saying, look, look at my good works. Look how good I am. I can't do that. It's by grace. So let's look at this idea of works. Another, what does works mean? So that's, where, that's the word we're gonna focus on here. Another old uh, dead guy. What is his name? Photius, Photius said this, and this is specifically talking about this idea of works. But even when we were created for good works, not only have we done nothing good, but we have even returned the very opposite. All right, so we've been created. God, uh, those of us who are in Christ, we've been created for good works, toward good works, to do good works, but we couldn't do anything good. As a matter of fact, the good things that we did were actually bad. <laughs> we, we can't add anything. But this, being created for good works, now that we're saved and we're being, we have been created for good works, is at one and the same time both urging us forward to do good deeds and standing us apart from good deeds. What he's saying is that the good deeds don't do anything. The good deeds only bring glory and honor to the Father and to the Son and to the Spirit. It's not about me. It's not about my position, my standing, my merit with God. It's already been paid for on the cross. I can't earn any favor. I, I usually like to pride myself on um, illustrations, analogies. This one was really hard. <laughs> this one, I spent a lot of time trying to come up with an analogy. None of them work, all right? But I'm gonna give it my best shot. Now, all illustrations, all analogies break down, but I think this can maybe be helpful, maybe not. Um, this is a picture of several uh, CEOs or executives. Uh, they are um, cheese makers and they are breaking ground uh, for a new part of their factory, I guess. Really has nothing to do with my illustration, but there's a picture of cheese people. You'll, you'll get it. Um, when I was young, I was really little, probably five or six. I remember I was in the backyard. We had one of those um, uh, turtle sandboxes like plastic turtle sandboxes. And I was, you know, digging around in there. And um, I, I remember I had a broken baseball bat, like it was just a giant spike. Um, and I was using it like a shovel. And I don't know who it was, probably my brother, maybe my sister, uh, they're older than me, uh, had like the big camcorder, you know, and came up like, Brian, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm digging for cheese. And, you know, like a five, it's just like a five-year-old thing to say, right? And it was funny. And for years, we, we laughed about that. Oh, Brian, so, so funny, right? Digging for cheese. All right, here, here's, here's the illustration. That my works before Jesus and after Jesus are the same thing. It's just like if I'm digging for cheese, it's worthless. It, it doesn't add any value to my life to sit around digging for cheese, None at all. I could be the best digger for cheese and it wouldn't amount to anything. That's my works before Jesus. And then 
some cheese farmers come around and they're like, hey, you're really good at digging for cheese. I wanna hire you. I wanna pay you to dig for cheese and because it brings me joy to know that you're out there digging for cheese. My digging for cheese is still worthless. It doesn't add anything other than it gives my employer joy. We gotta stop digging for cheese, right? And the thing is our good works, it just doesn't do anything. And, it, and if I'm out in my front yard, right, digging for cheese and my neighbor's like, what are you doing? And I was like, no, I'm digging for cheese. And they were like, ha ha ha, that's funny. No, really, what are you doing? I'm like, no, really, I'm digging for cheese. The authorities would be there in minutes, right? No, something's wrong. But yet that's our heart, that's our attitude that we think I can do something to, to, to make God love me more. I can be better than you. Wrong. I'm just digging for cheese out here. And by the grace and mercy of God, he saved me. Let's look at these good works though for God's glory because, because we are saved to good works. So this, this, let me just read the verse again. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, his masterpiece, his creation created in Christ Jesus. Why? To do good works, which were prepared for us in advance, right? It's still digging for cheese, but now... God wants us to do these things. Why? Because I have to? Nope. Because it, he'll love me more if I do? Nope. Because I want to. Because our good deeds aren't actually digging for cheese. You're, you're catching that, right? We're not gonna go dig for cheese. Our good works are loving my neighbor, caring for the poor, setting my preferences aside for other people. Those are my good works. It is to love you, for you to love me, to bear one another's burdens so that people that aren't in the church see us and go, man, they really love each other. Something's different about them and our good works don't point to us about how great we are or how cool I am and how good I am. It points to my savior. Those are my good works. And I'm saved for good works or to good works. It's not required. It's just a natural outpouring of my new resurrected heart. Uh, last night uh, here, uh, James Craig and Florence, I met Florence yesterday for the first time, but James Craig, so Will and Cully Craig's oldest son, uh, he's 23. I know he looks like he's 12, um, but he's not. Um, they, got, they got married here last night. Um, and it was a, it was a beautiful wedding. Uh, I had a good time doing it. Again, technical things were driving me crazy, but we're, we're getting there. Um, but it reminded me that as I was studying though, I, I was reminded of, of this, every quote, uh, I read a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer at every wedding I've ever done. Several of you uh, in here that I've officiated your weddings. I always read this quote. So this is uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his, he wrote uh, a sermon called A Wedding from a Prison Cell. He, he was engaged, he never got married. He was executed by Hitler for trying to assassinate him. Long story short, anyways. He writes this, A Wedding from a Prison Cell. And I always quote this at every wedding I've ever done. And uh, let, me, let me connect it. He says, in your love, you see only the, the heaven of your own happiness, but in marriage, you're a place at a post of responsibility towards the world and mankind. Your love is your own private possession. 
right? I'm in love. We're, We're in love. We can just be married in spirit, right? That's just my private thing. No, 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 no. Because in marriage, marriage is more than something personal. It is a status, an office, just as it is the crown and not merely the will to rule that makes a king. So it is in marriage, not just your love for each other that joins you together in the sight of God and man. And this is, this is the main crux of it. It is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. In our context, and what we're talking about here, that I've been saved two good works, we could read it this way. It is not your good works that sustains your covenant love with Christ. It is Christ's covenant love for you that sustains your good works, that sustains your love. He said, I'm gonna wake you up. I'm gonna give you faith, not based on anything you've done or even anything you will do in the future. I'm choosing you. I love you. Wake up. And we wake up and we see and we go, yes, I wanna pursue you. And I move to good works. I move to love my neighbor as myself, not out of obligation, not out of duty, but as a gospel response, a natural outpouring of my love for my savior. He has committed his covenant to me. And now that sustains my love. That sustains my good works for him. And my good works could be my time, my talent, my treasure, my ticker. We went through all those just this past summer. And so now, because of that covenant that he's made with us, now my strongest inclination at any moment, my free will of my strongest inclination is now bent towards him. I have freedom to choose him now where before I didn't have freedom to choose him. The Apostle Paul then ends it with that phrase. Oh, let me go here. One last quote, just kind of reiterating that point. R.C. Sproul says this, the Holy Spirit changes the inclination and disposition of our wills so that whereas we were previously unwilling to embrace Christ, now we are willing and more than willing. We've got a new heart. That Ezekiel passage read last week, he's removed this heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. The Apostle Paul, though, ends, though, he says this a few few times, so that no one can boast. Why? Why would the Apostle Paul add so that no one can boast? Not just here, but even in Romans chapter three, he says this, where where is boasting? And if you read it in context, like Jesus saved you, he loves you, grace and mercy and and justice and righteousness. So you can't boast. It's like, of course we can't boast. You clearly just described everything that God did for me. How could I possibly boast? Because I boast. I boast all the time in my heart, in my mind, out loud to people watching online. I boast. I'm a sinner. So gospel application is this, that God loves you. So let's stop trying to impress him or others. He loves you. It's his covenant with you that sustains that love. Not your good works, not your love for him that sustains that covenant. Doesn't work that way. His covenant with you sustains your love. And so this is literally the gospel applied to us here this morning in real life. That he saves you, you see him, you love him, and you're moved to good works to demonstrate your changed heart and disposition, not out of duty or obligation, or else you could boast, but out of love. As we do every week, we have communion. 
And uh, so if you're watching online, if you're still there, if I didn't scare you off yet, <laughs> um, we're going to have communion. And so if you've got juice or crackers or water or whatever, whatever elements you might have at home, I'd love for you to partake of these elements as well. If you're here, we've got uh, these little, little uh, uh, packets here that, that have the bread, the little wafer, and the juice. And the, the bread that it represents the body of Christ that's broken for us. The juice that represents his blood that was poured out for us. We, we literally get to remember his covenant with us. And his covenant with us, he, as he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. This is the new covenant in my body, which is broken for you. You do this. You take these elements in remembrance of me. And we remember here every single week that covenant that he made with us so that we can be alive and we can be motivated and love him to do good works. And that should be an outpouring because of what he's already done, the finished work at the cross. So if you're a follower of Jesus, if you say, yeah, I don't necessarily understand this whole faith thing. I don't understand that, but I know that I believe in him. I know that I love him. I know that he's forgiven me of my sins. If that's you, I would love for you to partake of these elements. You don't have to be a member of this church or any church, but I would love to partake of these elements and remember that new covenant in Christ's blood that he made for us thousands of years ago that we get to taste and see that he's good. We get to remember and viscerally taste it and remember the covenant that he made with us. So let me pray. And then the uh, worship team's gonna come back up. They'll play a couple more songs and, and feel free to grab the elements as you uh, feel fit and, and pray, repent, confess, worship. Uh, feel free to stand and sing along. If you know them, again, I don't have the lyrics, uh, but if you know them, feel free to sing along. Uh, let me pray. Heavenly Father, God, uh, thank you for uh, just this morning. Uh, thank you for your your servant, uh, Paul, who wrote these letters to the church, uh, wrote this letter to your people. Uh, and thank you that it has been preserved for these thousands of years that we can now look at that and say, I, I can't add anything to my salvation. I'm a sinner saved by grace, period. And so now this side of the cross, how do I think I can boast in my good works? That my good works are only for you and for your glory to point other people to you, not for my own sake, but for your sake. And so I pray that as we take these elements that you'd be honored, you'd be glorified. We love you. And I pray just uh, uh, hear our, our, our songs and our thoughts as we partake of these elements together as your, as your bride, as your church. And it's in your son's name that we pray, amen.